Yeah, my name is Pax Pedro. I'm here with Billy Bob. Uh, testing this app out. We're just a couple of working class guys. We love history and we have a strong desire for radical change just here in the USA, but globally. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world, kind of a macro look on world events because we're in a tremendously exciting time period to be alive. There's, uh, there's a lot going on. There's the spirit of revolution in the air. And uh, there's also a lot of um, propaganda. There's also a lot of finely tuned uh, public relations campaigns going for different factions. And uh, we do our best to, to cut through all of that bullshit and figure out what's really going on. Of course, this is this is just our opinions, but uh, I think we have a, a a better paradigm for through which to understand these, you know, the sequence of events that that pass by our our news every night, and they're kind of portrayed to us as unconnected. And oh, this just happened, and this just happened, and and there's no real common thread. And we think there is a a real common thread, a real common thread to <clears throat> world events. But uh, yeah, we're uh, we're just going to go over this uh, this piece that was written by this McTague guy based out of London, written for the Atlantic, talking about the decline of the American Empire and what that means for the world and and uh, where we go from here. So uh, let's just I'm just want to go over a few things of. Um, just let, let's let's get real for a second and look at, at world history just over the you know past century or so. The U.S. came out of World War II as the dominant power, and immediately fell into a struggle with USSR. We were a capitalist power built on the back of free enterprise and and uh, you know being the wealthiest and, and the strongest military. And that lasted until say about 1990 with the fall of the USSR. And since then, the world has been basically under the control of this unipolar power, which is the USA in league with, uh, you know, the familiar G7 nations, which are the, the colonial powers, former colonial powers of Europe, along with our junior partner, Japan, which is also of course a former colonial, colonial power. But uh, in this big, uh, you know, multi-decade beef with the Soviet Union and with the, you know, the, the socialist bloc, there was this, this big uh, conflict going on of, of which, which group can provide a better quality of life for, for humanity, which was the best way to, um, to organize our social relations and our governments. And, uh, you know, we really uh, told a story of what we stood for on the, on the Western side. We stood for democracy, human rights, freedom of speech, prosperity, abundance, and, and then, and, um, but we were being held back. We couldn't, we couldn't bring all the promises to fruition because of the threat of the Soviet Union. Malignant force that was an existential threat to all that was good. And that is, uh, that's how we portrayed them. But 
1990, when the Soviet bloc fell, all of a sudden, we had free reign to, to create the world in our image according to how we, you know, we could, we could finally fulfill the promises. So now it's been 30 years since 1990. And remember, the, around that time, Francis Fukuyama wrote that very famous paper that turned into a book about the end of history, saying that, you know, we have finally arrived. This is, we have liberal democracy mixed with capitalism, and this is the best form of government. And we've tried everything. And um, <clears throat> Billy Bob is saying I, he can't. And how they had the chance to, you know, create the world as they had promised that they could, starting in 1990 with the fall of USSR. There was nothing, nothing holding them back. They could bring this free market utopia into existence. And what did they do? You know, there was no longer an existential threat against, you know, the Western way of life, against freedom and democracy and human rights. They could, they had the opportunity to bring everything to the people. So what happened? Uh, first of all, they, they began to ramp up uh, aggressively uh, militarily. They began to, um, any smaller nation that, that wanted to maintain independence, we just, we just went after them full bore. So of course it started in Iraq and then it, it moved to Afghanistan as Serbia, Libya, Syria. There's a whole bunch of regime change wars that, that, uh, that we took part in, that, that we provoked and that we uh, and win with or without UN support many times. Um, and then rather, other than just overt attempts to, you know, take over governments and destroy democracies, there was all kinds of covert regime change uh, actions, uh, specifically revolving around groups like the Open Society, you know, a lot of these NGOs like the, the National Endowment for Democracy, the NED, uh, they they really went to work, and of course it was their work was all on behalf of Western multinational corporations. It wasn't on behalf of democracy and human rights. I think we I think we know that, um, despite uh, what they say. Another thing that they did is they they went full bore in economic blackmail. They used whatever kind of leverage they could to 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 co-opt any sovereign nation, any market. They forced it open and they implemented what are called IMF conditionalities, basically, uh, that uh, they said we wouldn't give you any money unless you shift your economy and make it, make it safe and profitable for our corporations. So of course the aim was total freedom for capital and much less freedom for people. And that was the, that was the neoliberal recipe for throughout the developing world. And essentially it meant that smaller nations would never be able to become self-sufficient and would remain debt slaves to the West forever. So, you know, those nations that resisted, they were, they were faced with isolation, uh, economic sanctions, blockades. Uh, you know, we know the names of these nations. They're, they're vilified in Western, Western media. Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Serbia, Iran, Syria, North Korea, uh, Myanmar. Uh, now it's Russia, of course, with the sanctions. And soon it's going to be China. There's legislation just waiting in the wings to force Western corporations to pull out of China, and that will pave the way for some real conflict there. Um, another, another thing that's happening that's just demonstrating, you know, how, how morally bankrupt this, you know, 
the ruling class is, is just the wealth concentration that, that the capitalist system that they have developed, the, the corporate, corporate system, it's just after 1990, the, the flow of wealth is just kicked up another gear and it just continually sucking, uh, you know, wealth and, and all the profits, the, it was reverse Robin Hood stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. And, uh, and not just within Western nations, but throughout the world, throughout the developing world as well. And of course, this leads on into global debt and inflation, which kind of goes together. Um, we have this massive debt bubble. One of the guys that I like to listen to is, uh, you know, just for a, a, a counterpoint is, um, I like to listen to the big hedge fund guys and uh, uh, Ray, uh, what's his name? I'm sorry, my nerves are getting to me. Ray Dalio, Ray Dalio. He has some ex to be friendly with China, but you know, he, he talks about how in this situation, this is when revolutions happen. This is when, um, you know, there's, there's unrest. The working poor get pissed and then the spirit of revolution fills the air. And that's, that's the situation we're in right now. So along with global debt comes the inflation and, and all of these things work against the, the working class, working against your, your, the working poor. Um, it's, it's all just a way where they're, where they're, they created a system that is collapsing on its own weight, but then they want us to pay for it. And that's their goal is to, is to establish another system. You know, whether you're talking about the world economic forum or, or whoever, that's what they want to do. They want to, they want to control this demolition and then build up another system where they remain on top. So that's, that's basically what's happening. It's, it's real clear that, uh, real clear that the West is fading and failing. So let's look into this, uh, let's look into this analysis that comes from uh, Mr. Tom McTague from the Atlantic. And uh, we're just gonna provide a, a different overview, a different uh, discussion here. He has his own paradigm through which he is, is viewing these things working out. So Billy Bob, are you back in? I do. Okay, yeah, so <laughs> sorry about that. Um, Mr. McTague offers uh, yeah. his expert analysis. This is mainstream analysis, but it's interesting. He's willing to admit to a few things. Of course, the obvious one is that America is in decline as a superpower. Um, but so he, he says that America, USA is in decline as a superpower, yet Russia's invasion of Ukraine reveals that the quote-unquote international order is more dependent on American power now than almost like than ever before. This is the greatest threat to the international order. So could you break down what that means, the international order? Is it, is it my peace and safety and security and prosperity? What is the international order that they're always talking about? Right, so, so yeah, we, I mean, we'd have to ask him. We, we know from, you know, uh, the Western narrative that, you know, when they talk about, you know, the global consensus or the rules-based order or the international order, you know, it basically is the, uh, the you know, developed, advanced Western uh, industrialized countries 
that were, um, you know, primary beneficiaries of World War II. And, and, and it's not, you know, again, every nation state is divided, um, you know, between classes. So, so the nation states of Western Europe, um, you know, that's, you know, the working class. Say that, go ahead. They don't want to admit that. There, no, there is no mainstream source that is going to nod towards the reality of, of even, even, you know, class structure. So they, they, hold, right. they stick to this nation state paradigm. But what they don't say, what they mean, what they really have in mind, but what they don't say with the international order is essentially the Western capitalist class. Um, that's yeah. that's essentially what they have in or in mind, and the capitalist class, of course, is in charge of the state apparatus of all the Western countries. So, so that's that's essentially what it is. It's the interests of the wealthy capitalists in the West. Their economic and political interests are what you know. This article is written for those people for for their interests. But yeah, they're not yeah. going to tell you that. They're not going to tell you that they don't give a fuck about the working class. That they don't, um, you know, what the working class wants doesn't matter to them. They're not going to say that. But that's yeah. that's that's you know where they're now, coming from. In, a, in an earlier conversation with you, I, you you pointed out that even the even the capitalist class is divided because not all of the capitalist class is class conscious. A lot of the capitalist class really believes their own propaganda that 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 they are the ones that they are the true hope of humanity that capitalism is going to solve everybody's problems, and that the job creators are. The people that make the world work, uh, but above them is, you know, they're they're not class conscious. But above them, the the people who who wield the the real power, they are class conscious, and they're very aware that uh, that there's alternatives to their international order. So go ahead. What, can you pitch in? Yeah. No. I mean, that's exactly right. So so the state apparatus is run by class conscious capitalists that understand their class interests and develop a strategy based on their class interests. It's, it's the inverse of what Marx calls the proletarian dictatorship and what Lenin calls the proletarian dictatorship. You know, the proletarian dictatorship in Marxist theory, in Marx-Leninist theory, is a, a party of, by, and for the working class that is tasked with identifying objectives, goals, and strategies to further and benefit the interests of the working class. You have essentially the same thing in the West, only it's it's not for the working class, it's for the capitalists. So just like um, you know, the, the Communist Party, the vanguard Communist Party, have to struggle against working class people who don't have a class consciousness, right? Working class people that have their own ideas about how things are or how things should be they have to be dealt with and they have to be you know hopefully won over but but you know they they've got to they can't be resisting progress right so sometimes you're going to have um individual working class people resisting progress for the good of the greater working class and 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 how do you deal with that? Well, that's a question. That's an open question. But the capitalists have the same issue. So in the West, the, the capitalist vanguard party that runs the CIA and determines the interests and objectives and the strategies to achieve, um, you know, to further the, the whatever whatever it is that the capitalists need to do 
as a class, um, you know, they are up against individual capitalists who don't care about that, who only care about themselves and just want to make a profit. So Trump can be seen like that, in, in my opinion. We don't have to go there, but but Trump can be an, an opportunist demagogue that has no interest in the greater class. He only cares about himself. And all these individual industries that are working in China, making money, they don't want to leave China. They don't care if it's going to be in the best interest of the capitalist class if they if they leave China. They just want to stay in China and make money. So so the well, capitalist a, class of the West. Yeah, let me let me just uh, right now because you're you're getting right into the subject of point number two, which is McTagg, the author here. He says that. He brings across this point that many sense that the USA is too divided and incoherent and violent and dysfunctional to sustain its empire, and its fall could be sudden and catastrophic. And then he makes this little side reference to Donald Trump, saying it's somebody, somebody like Donald Trump could really destroy the empire. You know, he's a he's a threat in that sense, and that's because what you're saying is he's not necessarily a class conscious capitalist. He's just a he's just a greedy opportunist. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, and that's and that's I believe, in my opinion, is why you know he was you know he takes all the all the heat that he does, and a lot of it is dishonest, a lot of it is manufactured, but it's because he's a threat to the the class consensus, the capitalist class consensus, the establishment consensus, and um, you know he's in it for him. He thinks he has better ideas, but but he doesn't have the broad consensus of the capitalist class. So there's a there's an inter there's an interclass rivalry. There's interclass warfare taking place. It's a civil war within the capitalist class over control of the policies and the positions of power, and and the strategy really that they're going to pursue to maintain their hegemony throughout the twenty uh, 21st century. Yeah, um, and that's kind of you know what's taking place. Um, right now with, you know, the, the provocations against China, you know, we provoked Russia that, that those provocations since 2014 finally resulted in some Russian action. So we're really seeing a quickening of the, of the, of the, of the, of the changes. We're, we're going to get yeah. into that because uh, you're doing good of moving us uh, down here. Uh, so yeah, uh, regarding Trump, yeah, he comes across as more as a nationalist. So there is a, there is a global strategy among, you know, all the all the major CEOs and and you know uh, uh, hedge funds and whatever, all the all the money managers. There, there's a group at the top that that do understand that uh, all the capitalists of the world need to stick together because there is a threat out there because there is different ways to you know uh, structure or structure governments and there is a China and a Russia out there and. And what they what they do not want to appear is is the threat of a good example. So um, so yeah, but Trump seems to be just uh, he's found a good audience and he's found a lot of voters that really just say screw this you know global agenda, let's just make America great, right? Um, but here's the that's thing, that, okay, that's popular. Let's, let's make let's move down to number three as the USA disengaged from Europe. This is what McTagg is saying, and I don't, I don't know if there is actually truth to this, but he's saying, first of all, he's saying the USA was disengaging from Europe. I don't necessarily think so, but he's saying Europe saw USA disengaging or at least declining. So their strategy was to mitigate that by making trade deals with Russia and China. But then all out of the blue in 2022, 
just out of the blue, but then Russia invaded Ukraine and everything changed. Like, oh, wow, we didn't see that coming. I mean, is that really what happened? <laughs> or, <laughs> the, of course, we, me and you know the greater context of, of Russia's invasion and the seeds of that were planted in 2014, but it was planted even, even way before that. But uh, just comment on like Europe's, Europe's point of view, because they're in a sense, they're, they have their own capitalist class that is opportunistic. And a lot of the dealings with China was that, was, was simply opportunistic. It was a brand new market where corporations could make a lot of money. It was also a cheap labor market where they could move manufacturing over. And it was a win-win, like the China got built up economically and our corporations made a lot of money. Go ahead, uh, Billy Bob. Yeah, uh, I mean, for sure. So the way that the author, um, you know, phrases some of these things and presents the information, it, it obfuscates some things and it implies a sort of narrative that is totally, uh, you know, detached from reality. So, um, so yeah, of course, Russia um, didn't invade Ukraine out of the blue and change everything. Um, you know, th there was there was provocation after provocation. You know, really since since even before two thousand eight. But um, in two thousand eight, I think NATO formally invited Ukraine to join NATO, um, and then there was the coup in twenty fourteen, um, and you know, all kinds of all kinds of um, policies by the Ukraine government that um, were yeah, were really anti-Russian. And anti, every European, you know, cultural, every, European uh, nation, every European nation that was that was part of NATO knew this was coming. So even the even the end of of was a Gulf Stream two that other pipeline that didn't come out of the blue. That didn't you know Russia invaded and then all of a sudden like oh no we got to stop this pipeline. No they they knew. I mean I'm, I'm sure the the you know the the plan for this was laid a long time ago and you know. Europe might have known, Germany might have known 10 years ago that that pipeline would never be allowed to go through. And so this is just another example of the European ruling class working against the best interests of their own people to further just, uh, you know, G7 dominance over the world at the being led by the United States. So, yeah, obviously, you know, with the creation of Nord Stream 2, you had European companies, European corporations and industries investing in that pipeline, hoping that it would be able to go online. But, you know, again, within within any ruling class, you have various factions that have competing as well as overlapping interests. So they do vie for power and they vie for um you know, access to be able to implement the policies that benefit them, you know, personally. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's a struggle there. So, you know, there was an interclass struggle in Western Europe. There was the industrialists who, um, you know, were interested in, you know, making money off of Russian oil. But then there was, you know, another another faction within the capitalist class that thought that is we're never going to allow that. That's just not going to happen because once we integrate Russia even more in our economy, that's going to displace the U.S. And um, you know, we will we will we will be weaker as a class, and it will not be good for our 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 best interests. Um, 
you know, one of the divides, um, I, I posted on my Facebook an interesting article about the divide, especially in Western Europe, between the financial elite and the industrialists. You know, the people that actually make yeah. um, make make things or, or um, you know, build pipelines and, and, and profit from actual oil. And then the financiers, the bankers that um, have kind of different interests from the industrialists. Um, yeah. I don't want to get too much into that, but but suffice to say, you know, there's 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 a struggle within the capitalist class to um, to first, you know, determine what their interests are, and then secondly, how to what is the best way to pursue those interests. And there's not a unanimity of thought, but a, a consensus gets developed, and in the development of that consensus, the U.S. itself has a big say over <laughs> over what the interests are of and the, and the way that they're pursued for Western Europe. Well, because we are the premier financial power because the whole global economic system runs on the petrodollar. So uh, big banking and big oil are the, you know, the, the big dogs, I think. Um, okay, moving on. And as far as that disconnect between the financial capitalists and industrial capitalists, Michael Hudson really gets into that, especially his latest book, uh, just some just some great stuff on how that works. And um, yeah, it's it, there's a conflict there, but the, the financial side has the upper hand for sure. Um, so moving on, number four, uh, yeah, to save Europe and the, so, and the quote unquote democracy of Ukraine. And despite internal dysfunction, the USA somehow managed to provide more military aid than any other NATO nation. Well, of course, this isn't this isn't. Uh, <laughs> This isn't like a David and Goliath of like, oh, the U.S. finally somehow managed to to pull together some funds. Uh, you know, we've just been printing money for for a couple of decades now, and and that's this is just leading to the the debt bubble and the inflation problem. But uh, we have that uh, we have that power. We have that power to just create money whenever we need it and to throw it around, and that's how we corrupt the world. Uh, number five, the power of the USA's so he actually says this. This, this, the author of this uh, article, McTague, the power of the USA's military-industrial complex and their imperial bureaucracy somehow managed to overcome Donald Trump's presidency and is now able to respond to Putin's attempted colonization of Ukraine. That's so, a very nice self-serving uh, perspective. I mean, narrative to put out there. It's an empire, and it's you know, uh, but yeah. The uh, it's the uh, Putin's attempted colonization. No, no recognition that these are Russian-speaking peoples. No recognition that the Crimean people themselves voted by like 98% to rejoin Russia. They can't have any of that uh, out there in on the pages of the Atlantic magazine. Anyway, uh, number six. So he, one of his conclusions right now is that Europe Europe is weak and it has no good alternatives right now. Um, do they cling to American power? Does the EU lap of the Americans and say, please help save us? Do, or do they try to rebuild their industry? Do they try and salvage some independence? You know, they're going to go against the U.S. corporations because it's our military industrial complex and our big corporations like GE. You know, we want to do all this stuff for them and, and, and reap billions in profits. Um, Another option that was mentioned uh, that he later kind of goes back on, but uh, Europeans are actually talking about going full bore in this thing and, and offering to expand NATO into the Asia Pacific. 
to help the USA against China, which is obviously the next the next uh, move for this class conscious uh, capitalist oligarchy. Your thoughts? Right. So, you know, the, the best option for Western Europe and the best option for humanity in the world is, of course, everybody engages in, you know, following basically the UN charter and agreeing you know, not to engage in an aggressive an aggression, either economic aggression or military aggression. And so, you know, we stop overthrowing governments. Um, we stop embargoing governments and we engage in peace through mutual prosperity and win win trade deals that ends up, you know, in, uh, enriching everybody and and developing the underdeveloped world. Um, you know, that that's that's the future. That's that's the best option. And China, you know, more than anybody else is offering that alternative, you know, in their Belt and Road Initiative in the amazing um, investment and development they're doing in Africa and Central and South America. Um, you know, that's the best thing for humanity. And it's so it's so basic. It's so fundamental and it's so plain. Um, and yet, you know, he, he's got he can't even he can't even. Um, put that out as an option, right? He's got to hide that as an option. And it's a given in his worldview, it's a given that we must do our best to contain. And when he says contain, he doesn't mean contain, he means destroy, you know, destroy no, no. Russia and China. Used, and is Europe going to help with that? Yeah, the words he used is, is we need to be a balance to China's goal of regional hegemony. In other words, yeah, China wants to be able to have a say in what happens in their own region. And okay, it's made a little more than that. Yes, China, China wants to be the top dog in their own region because they see themselves as a, as a you know, superpower civilization. They feel they're finally taking their rightful place after a hundred years of colonialism and, and poverty. They're finally taking their right place in the world. But yeah, he, he frames it in terms of we need to, we need to balance that. And it's, it's much more, they're in much more of a panic than that. That what they, again, what they really fear is the threat of a good example. I mean, if Westerners learn that Chinese people have a great deal of freedom and, uh, and you know, there, there are not, you know, uh, concentration camps full of 5 million Uyghurs. I mean, I don't know if we want to get, but yeah, if, if, if they if they provide a good example, if any nation of the world provides a good example of a different of an alternative system where where financiers don't rule through an oligarchy, uh, the whole world could be facing a revolutionary moment. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, I just thought this was interesting because this guy is uh, writing from he's based in London, so he's very um in, very much influenced by the the British mindset, and of course. Britain has always seen themselves as uh, rivals to Europe, you know, um, and they've always looked down at them and poo-pooed them. They were, they were imperial rivals and trying to colonize Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, but uh, so he says uh, in Britain, they are just looking at this European panic regarding the USA's decline. They see it as a quote unquote, a comforting fantasy that, that, that allows the Europeans to justify their unwillingness to make a concrete decision. Because you're right, the EU, it, you know, the, the nations, the leaders of France, Macron and, and, and in Germany, they really, they're having a hard time picking one way or the other because they got a bunch of pissed off citizens that, you know, 
if whatever move they make, they're going to have a bunch of people pissed off or they're going to, or their own, you know, ruling class is going to take a major hit. So, so, but Britain to just sit back and, and look at that and, and saying that, uh, that, that they're giving into this comforting fantasy as a way to avoid making a, a decision. It's just, uh, it's typical, typical, uh, you know, British, uh, I don't know. It's their, it's their own kind of uh, pride and, what what do you think he what is he referring to as the comforting fantasy help me understand that i it, it really doesn't come clear you'd have to read it in context again it, okay i mean he, he just he uses those words though and he says that the the yeah. leaders that, that britain the people that he talked to in britain they in other words they the britain does not want to see an american decline i mean we they are hitched to the u.s at at the hip and uh they're gonna fight tooth and nail because the city of London is second to, you know, Wall Street and Washington D.C. as, you know, a center of global financial hegemony. So they are class conscious, I would say, more than more than anybody else. Um, let's go moving on to uh, number eight. So his conclusion about regarding Europe is Europe must face the reality that it is irrelevant. This flows from his British influence, right? Europe's just irrelevant, and it will forever be. It, it will be quote unquote forever America's junior partner and quote unquote, a place of secondary importance. Well, that's actually Britain, but, <laughs> but yeah, that's what, that's what his, his view is. That's, that's Europe's future. Go ahead. What, what is, is he advocating um, for a particular, um, you know, behavior from Western Europe? I did read the article in its entirety, but that there, was a little while ago. It's just it's just his own observations and his commentary, and he doesn't give any advice, and he doesn't say this is the way out. That's kind of where okay. he ends it. So going on to number nine to to, to finalize this overview, he, he, the point he makes is that the USA is truly in decline, and if there is a sudden collapse, there is really nothing that her allies can do about it. In other words, it's, this is up to the U.S. and the USA alone shoulders the responsibility of quote ordering the world. That's that's the USA's job. We can't shirk from it. We need to step up. We need to be strong and we need to maintain this uh, rules-based international order, which, uh, which started after we basically gave the finger to the UN after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1990. Yeah, so I, I think I get what he's saying. So he's making the observation that, um, you know, Western Europe is not going to be able to do much of the heavy lifting to ensure Western capitalist class hegemony throughout the rest of the 21st century. So it's really up to the U.S. to decide and formulate a, a strategy and then enact that strategy, whatever it is. He doesn't say what possible strategy can result in the containment of China, the containment of Russia, and allow the Western capitalist class to maintain their economic and political hegemony over the planet. So, and I, I think he doesn't articulate a strategy because I don't think there is one. I think the decline of the Western imperialism is inevitable. And I think that's a great thing for um, the planet, you know, for humanity. So, but, but kind of what the, one of the purposes of this kind of article is just to, um, you know, reset this farcical narrative that everybody in the West is just indoctrinated with from cradle to grave. When they watch the news, when they read a newspaper, like everybody is coming from this one liberal perspective that 
is not at all connected to actual reality. And so this, this kind of an article kind of just reinforces that and it helps people who are already indoctrinated into that kind of a paradigm to, to you know, it, it, it shifts their opinion into thinking, oh, okay, well, the U.S. must do something. The U.S. must do something or freedom will, will freedom and democracy will get eroded. So, so then once the U.S. does determine a strategy, you know, a lot of people who don't know any better are liable to support it. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of articles like this. It's to reinforce this worldview and to, and to get people's opinions in support of whatever it is the capitalist class ends up deciding must be done to maintain their hegemony. So I don't even think the author knows what they're going to do yet. But his piece, yeah. you know, primes people's opinions to be in line with whatever it is. And it's not just this one. I mean, it is thousands and thousands and thousands yeah. of other articles just like this. Because, you know, I don't, I don't think more than, you know, two or three percent of the population is going to read this particular article. I don't even know what the Atlantic's readership well, is like. But that's just how it is. I, yeah. My feeling of this journalist, and it's like journalism, you know, throughout the mainstream media, is that these young journalists are basically social climbers. They see how the game is played. They know the acceptable range of opinion, right? So they want to come up with something that's a little clever, a little fresh, maybe a little edgy, you know, because he does talk about their imperial bureaucracy and the military industrial complex, that kind of thing. You know, you at one point you couldn't talk about that, but now you can. So he's he's on the edge of things, but he's just... He's a he's a bootlicker and he wants to rise up the ranks of, of corporate media. And this is, you know, it's an yeah. yeah. interesting article that, uh, you know, people can can enjoy without a threat to the establishment. Uh, we, and he he's we definitely have, has uh, an audience in mind. You know, he's definitely, um, you know, knows his specific audience who, who, who regularly reads The Atlantic. And so he's kind of talking to them. And that's how good journalism works. You know, he's targeting a specific demographic that has been indoctrinated in a specific way to have these specific views. So to those people, yeah, it's totally within the norm to, to mention the military industrial complex, but then to, um, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, shape it so it's really not as relevant as it actually is. And, you know, yeah, it, no, it's propaganda. Exactly. It's, okay. it's straight, straight up propaganda. Okay, we got our first caller. Oh, this good. is awesome, Martin. And uh, let's go to Martin. You can, I think you can unmute. There you go. How, how's it going, man? Hey guys, thank you for taking my call. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I'm I can hear you loud great. and clear. Okay, that's great. Uh, yeah, I felt that it was a poor analysis of uh, of the situation in general. Uh, there were so many things that were missing, especially from a European perspective. It just amazed me that this guy even lives in Europe. Uh, wow, he has missed so much. Like, you can go all the way back to Skröder and uh, and uh, Jacques Chirac, uh, where um, when they were actually trying to uh, implement a, a Europe EU military and make the EU into a more of a federal uh, state type of thing where they yeah, were trying to right. like distance uh, Europe from the American hegemony uh, and this is all the way back in early 2000s and and then he also misses completely the point that US has been directly involved in actually creating hurdles for uh, achieving that 
and uh, even going to the length of creating a false rape accusation against one of the uh, uh, French uh, president's uh, candidates back in 2008, I think it was, or six or something, uh, who was the IMF uh, chief uh, before that, who was a very Europe-focused politician and felt that uh, Europe should distance itself from the American hegemony. And he got uh, alleged that he was he had raped a maid in a New York uh, hotel, and they made a huge deal out of it until he dropped out of the race, and then the whole thing just disappeared. So there's been tons of these kind of cases where U.S. has been directly involved in preventing Europe from finding its own sovereignty. And on top of that, just completely ignoring American role uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union to create these measures and create these situations that has brought U.S. to the point that it has is just, I, I don't know. I, if I was if I was grading this guy as a, like a professor at the university, he would have just flunked out. Yeah. You, you get bad marks from you. Yeah, appreciate, appreciate your thoughts, man. Yeah, uh, let's see here. I, I don't really have much to comment. You could stay in the queue here. Well, I, I do remember that. Um, I remember that rape allegation, and I forget the name, but yeah, he was he was a former with the IMF, and I think that was his problem. He was um, not sufficiently pro-U.S. and not sufficiently controlled, you know, by the West. So uh, I totally believe uh, Martin's explanation there that. That essentially was a frame up, you know, by the U.S. to to keep somebody who was likely going to win the election, you know, out of power because he would have been a, too big of a headache to deal with, and they didn't want to. I, that's totally believable. So, uh, so Martin, are you in Europe right now? Yes, I, I live in Norway. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, what is your analysis? Yeah, I was just going to say I also studied in UK, so I know some some of the UK. Dynamics. Yeah, yeah. You you understand that particular uh, uh, British point of view that's uh, a little uh, a little outside of reality. Well, I I feel like the whole thing, like first of all, ignoring the complete par uh, like uh, the the whole thing that U.S. has. In cooperation with Europe, of course, especially with the elites and operations of Russia, uh, it's been like complete, uh, I don't know, like there's been just spewing lies everywhere in the media and everything and trying to like change the course of people, uh, public opinion, not mentioning any of those things that like uh all the things that happened the way us has put pressure all the way back to like, the iraq war uh like sanctioning uh, uh france for not uh, participating in the iraq war yeah. yeah freedom fries and all that bullshit freedom fries that's right we're gonna get those french people we're gonna rename it freedom fries and this uh, martin let me going ask you a question. sorry go ahead. yeah no my, my question to you though is the one thing that I do tend to agree with is his conclusion, though, that that, well, not his overall conclusion, but I would agree that the current batch of European leaders are really kind of handcuffed right now. They really can't 
make a good move. They're stuck in this place of indecision. Like they can't, they can't full on go hawkish and, you know, launch NATO against Russia. And at the same time, they can't completely detach from that, you know, they, and they cannot, um, they cannot give in to the wishes of their own working class because then they're going to take their own personal hits in their pocketbook. So where does the current European leadership go from here? And what are the chances of replacing that leadership over the next couple of years? Well, I feel like that that's going to happen naturally. Like uh, the way people are getting upset here in Europe that uh, that our leaders are not actually focusing on our needs and rather focusing on American uh, international policy needs. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, <clears throat> I feel it's weak of our politicians to not be able to stand on their own feet at all. Like you can see even like the Emirates and uh, Saudi Arabia, who has been like the lackey of US since the 50s. Uh, even they stand up for themselves. Even they like reach out to China and reach out to Russia and try to make their own, like they see what's coming. And that is just crazy that they see what's coming and our European leaders don't see what's coming and don't de uh, decouple themselves from the American policy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Would you support the, greater... The... Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask Martin. I mean, are are you would you be in favor of greater integration um, between Europe and Russia economically, and also China? Like, is that something that there is, um, um, you know, is there a broad working class fear that keeps the, you know, that 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 people people would want to avoid, you know, further integration with China and Russia, or is that really an elite thing? I mean, is that just the elites, or is there is there sentiment supporting that among the working class in Western Europe? Well, you have to understand that we are propagandized, and and yeah. uh, that yeah. propaganda does has its effects. But in general, nobody in Europe was up until like even a few years ago was ever worried that China and us had to integrate in any like in any social and cultural way. We knew that we have to work with them like economically, but, and since they were going to, we saw it coming that they were becoming the, the next economic powerhouse of the world. Uh, so we were, we already knew that, but not, not the general people. Uh, nobody was worried about any type of like cultural or, political integration with China or Russia. Like we, even in Norway, like we have never had that fear for Russia, even during like the Cold War era, we had like an open border and a deal with the Russians, uh, the Soviet Union during the eighties, which was like the height of the, the height of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had like a open border negotiation for our border, uh, uh, like counties and states. So anybody from Russia or Soviet Union could come over and work in Norway uh, at the border counties and the same way, uh, the other way around as well, without any visa. So, and this was during the Soviet era, as I said. So mm -hmm. we have never had that great year. It, it has been created the last 10 years about Russia, uh, I would say, especially when they, they saw that they can't control Russia after the Georgia incident. Uh, so we have had like gradually been sneaking up on us with this like fear mongering and stuff. But mm -hmm. in general, people before before this 
huge uh, uh, propaganda campaign that has been running for five months now. Before that, people didn't have an issue. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder I if um, there's, you know, so there's probably not a broad consensus that says, yes, we need to sacrifice, you know, our, our electricity bills, our economic interests, and in order to contain China and defeat or contain Russia and, you know, contain Russia and China, really. Um, I mean, I think that's what the U.S. is hoping to do. They're hoping to sacrifice, you know, Western Europe in order to contain Russia and China. And, and I hope that there's no propaganda on Earth that is able to, uh, you know, uh, convince people to do that. But um, they're very they're very tricky. So I, I guess. I guess it's possible. Yeah, let, let, me, interject. let me interject here. Uh, you, you, you made a comment, Martin, uh, WW3. So, uh, you know, World War III is, I think it's a very real threat. I, I do think that that desire for that is confined within, you know, one faction of these uh, sociopathic oligarchs, you know, that are one, one very, they're very woke in the sense that they're very class conscious. And I think they're starting to panic. And they really see that uh, they need to move quickly to, like I said, to contain Russia and China and to push them back, uh, you know, half a century or more. Um, but uh, Billy Bob, I, what, what do you think? I mean, how, how serious are they? How much ruling class uh, support for, for implementing World War III is there? Man, I mean... I think specifically, I can't hear you very good. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm hoping other people can hear you fine, but it's like every other syllable, it breaks up. So I couldn't even make out your question. You want to repeat it one more time? What are the, how, how serious is the danger of World War III? Well, okay. I mean, you know, no, nobody really knows uh, what the plans and strategy is of the people, you know, in charge of those things. I really think it's being decided, you know, in, in, in the U.S., in Washington, um, you know, how far are they willing to go? What are their plans? Uh, that is an open question. Um, you know, I think I can safely assume that they have no interest in a, you know, a nuclear war, which would basically be detrimental to, you know, humanity and there's no there's no profit to be made in nuclear war. But um, up until nuclear war, I mean, there's tons of profit for the Western, uh, the military industrial complex to make lots of money off of a conventional war, especially a conventional war that's fought by proxies. So right now you see uh, Western Europe and the friendly Eastern European allies, Poland, Latvia, Estonia, those countries. You know, they're shipping their Soviet era weapons to Ukraine and then they're buying brand new U.S. weapons for themselves. Um, so I think there's a big appetite in the U.S. specifically to ramp up conventional war fought with proxy forces because that doesn't hurt the United States at all. It doesn't hurt the capitalists that live in the United States and it really doesn't hurt the capitalists that are in Western Europe either. So, you know, um, to the extent they can promote this, this aggression against Russia, and they're trying to spark something against China, to the extent they can do that without risking, you know, a nuclear confrontation, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, you know, push it as far as they can. But, um, you know, 
it's it's an open question, and I I would like to hear other people's uh, perspectives on on how that's going to play out because it's very interesting discussion. Yeah, Martin, well, what do you think? If I could interject here. Yeah. Uh, well, I I think uh, I don't I I am worried that American elites actually believe they can win a nuclear war. To be quite honest. Uh, yeah. Because uh, if you see from like about 30 years back and onwards, they have been implementing programs and projects that will enhance their capability to prevent one of the deterrent, one of the three deterrents, uh, or maybe even more than one of the deterrents that you, uh, Russia has against uh, against uh, U.S. because they have the they got the air fleets, they got the uh, submarines, and the, you got the ISBMs. I think it's called, isn't it? Uh, so ICBMs, uh, so yeah, I, ICBMs. Yeah, I, yes, that's right. Uh, so so they have been trying to prevent. One of the projects was exactly putting the uh, putting the defense uh, type of umbrella in uh, both Romania and Poland uh, that has been ongoing for like almost 20 years. Uh, and that was part of the reason that actually Russia was fearing that if Ukraine would be a platform for uh, such deterrence uh, elimination, then then they wouldn't have any way back. And it seems like the Americans, with the whole thing going all the way back to W, uh, Bush, where uh, and creating like smaller tactical nukes that could be uh, affordable to use uh, in conventional war. And as far as I know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but U.S. is the only country in the world that preserves the right to use nuclear uh, bombs as a first use right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and China has just doubled down on their, excuse me, China has, the U.S. does absolutely have, you know, they preserve that right to themselves to use a first strike. China has just doubled down and reiterated their policy of no for initiate a first strike. Whatever, whatever military action they do, especially involving nuclear, will be in response to any to something else. Yeah, yeah. no, I think that's true. So China's doctrine is way more, um, you know, peaceful, uh, moral, that, that, yeah, peaceful than the West. So I think the West uh, recently did change their doctrine, and uh, now the, the the verbiage includes protecting our interests. <laughs> so it's so vague, like they could use nuclear weapons to defend their interests. So, like, what does that mean? Uh, so basically, yeah, they've kind of um, they're they're showing the world that they're unrestrained. They're not afraid to engage in a first strike. And yeah, China's uh, behaving much more humanely, peacefully. Um, Russia, I think, is kind of the global leader as far as you know ICBM technology, nuclear weapons technology. They've got hypersonics. They're they're several years ahead of the U.S. So, and that's kind of why I say I don't think right now the West is interested in any kind of a nuclear exchange. Um, I think they would like to have a technical advantage, um, you know, a, a option. But because they are behind the uh, the Russians, you know, I I, I kind of see that as off the table for the for now. They're certainly trying to would like to put it on the table, but they have to develop. You know, they have a lot of development to do to catch up to Russia. That's kind of my perspective on that. But definitely they're not, you know, it's not their, it's not their morals that are keeping them from doing it. Yeah, as long as we're talking about nukes and the use of nukes, uh, you know, this 
this does bring into a better focus the, the actions of uh, rogue states, so-called rogue states like North Korea, in refusing to back down and continuing to develop their own nuclear weapons as a form of self-defense, because they've learned from situations like Libya, where we convinced Gaddafi to hand over all of his you know, nuclear programs and to shut everything down and to get rid of all of his uranium and, and just, you know, it's like, okay, buddy, we'll embrace you if you just if you just let go of nuclear. And of course he did all that and then we, we just took him out. So the North Koreans are are learning from that. Yeah, he really got played, um, poor Gaddafi did. And yeah, North Korea, of course, they recently announced they were dropping out of the um, N NPT, right? The Non-Proliferation Treaty. I think they, they dropped out. And um, that was within the last month, I believe. I was pretty recent, um, which, is, which is provocative. But I mean, who, who can blame them? And then Iran, too. You know, Iran has always said, hey, uh, it, is, it is against Islam. We are not going to develop nuclear weapons. And yet, since the early 90s, um, the West has been pretending that they are, you know, pursuing nuclear weapons solely to to justify their economic aggression against Iran. Um, but now um, Iran's uh, their special it's not their Quds force, but I forget the there's uh, their special political arm that is is for self-defense. They're saying, um, you know, it's totally not off the table. Like if we're yeah. pushed, we will develop nukes. So yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting question. Martin, you might have some some thoughts that you'd like to share with us on the nuclear issues. Well, I, I feel like the whole hypocrisy around that just is just amazing. Where uh, AUKUS was like created six months ago, where they're going to transfer technology over to Australia, uh, which goes against the NPT. Uh, while criticizing uh, countries like Iran and North Korea for breaking the NPT or just the spirit of NPT when it comes to Iran, uh, according to them. So I, I it, but that that is like that is the major that's the biggest failure of American policy makers uh, because up until like the 80s, even maybe even the 90s, one would say, you guys had a great diplomatic court. Uh, the diplomats of America, they could go in without having any negotiation advantage at all and come out at, on top every time before that. But uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union, you guys have been decoupling every single measurement that the previous diplomats, yeah. the greater thinkers of the 50s and 60s, try to implement to make sure that once U.S. doesn't have this hegemonic power, once it can't uh, force others to do as it wants, then then it try it, they try to create a world where it will survive and not be bullied around. But since the 90s, the same diplomats that uh, from the, not the same diplomats, but the diplomats from the same country like U.S. have been decoupling that system by force, like brute force it, when it comes to the uh, like weapons contracts with the uh, soviet union they had every single one of them has been decoupled every single one of the treaties when it comes to missiles has been decoupled even the open sky has been removed now which has been like the longest surviving treaty between two rival states 
So yeah, yeah. I, I was just saying like, it, that this final thing I want to say is just like I, I feel it, they did a huge disservice to their country. Every every single diplomat, every single politician since the nineties in the U.S. has done a huge disservice to them. Well, country. yeah, the the trash the trashing of these important agreements, I mean, gets us closer to conflict, right? So these are precursors to uh, an actual conflict, and China. The same thing's going on with China. You know, China just said, "Hey, we're not going to cooperate with you on um, you know drug issues, you know uh, international drug issues. We're not going to." Uh, work with you. I don't know. There was like at least seven different areas where, you know, uh, the pro the provocations that the U.S. is doing vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan has caused the Chinese government to say, hey, we're going to we're not going to work with you on this agreement, on this agreement, on this agreement. And that's, you know, that's that's U.S. diplomacy. That is the end result of U.S. diplomacy, like you said. And I think you're right. You know, in the 80s and 90s, you had more intelligent, bigger thinkers and they were able to create things, you know, the create things that benefited both sides. And now it's it's more um, they're destroying things and they're destroying things because they can't they can't just dictate like they used to. And so like a, like a, like an angry child playing Monopoly, you know, they're just wrecking the board. <laughs> they're going to we're going to see where it all ends up. But uh, I definitely agree. Uh, you know, there's there's been a, a downward trend with our diplomatic efforts, but um I, I think it's intentional I, I don't think it's just because they're they're inadequate i think there's an intentionality there uh yeah definitely absolutely i agree uh, i want to thank you guys for letting me to uh, letting me talk i feel uh... yes sir well that was that was okay so yeah thanks martin for joining us you had some great comments i do see greg there um wanted to get in hey greg how's it going man we're great. How are you? Hello there. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. I can. Yes. Go ahead. All right. You cut off a little bit, but um, no, I'm only calling in because uh, Pax Pedro said I was going to get booted from the chat if I do, didn't uh, call in. That's right. <laughs> we, we go hard against trolls. So if you got a lot. Not sure why. I was just asking if you guys are against. No, Russian no. imperialism. If you got a lot to say. Oh, I love that question. Then you're welcome to. Then you are. Uh, then we will incentivize you to. But I hear nothing. To show up. So, uh, he. Okay, you can't. You can't hear Pax, Greg. I, you can't no, hear I Pax. Can, that's right. I can only hear you. Okay. Uh, he was agreeing. Uh, he was saying. I, what were you saying, Pax? Um, I can tell Greg what you were saying. He can't hear you for some reason. Oh, just uh, yeah, just uh, just go with it. He's he's uh, he has a different perspective. He's he's uh, yeah. He's so, um, thanks for working with us, Greg. Uh, we're we're experiencing technical difficulties. I've I've had a hard time hearing Pax through the entire uh, the entire time here. It's gotten a little bit better, and now it's a little bit worse. But so you brought up a good question. I mean, um, it's one that I've dealt with a bunch as far as Russian imperialism. So, but, you know, it begs the question, if if Russia is engaging in imperialism, I mean, what is imperialism? So, so I mean, do you have, do you have a broad, a broad um, definition that we could, we could establish before we, we talk about how Russia is being imperialist? Well, we don't have to get so esoteric about it, you know. Um, the fact that they're 
trying to take over Ukraine is a pretty good example of imperialism, and they're pretty much up in front about it, right? I mean, uh, Putin made a big, long speech about wanting to uh, go back to the 19th century uh, borders of Russia. Their entire behavior shows also that... Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with some Putin speeches. I'm not sure he declared that he's trying to rebuild the Russian Empire. I I don't think that's an honest, you know, um, summary of anything he's ever said. But I can, I mean, I can basically go through the timeline and I can defend, um, you know, I can articulate a defense of what Russia is doing right now. And, and in my mind, like uh, Russia has been long suffering, you know, incredibly patient and long suffering. And they've gone out of their way to avoid a conflict. And they've been, you know, bending over backwards, asking the West to respect their legitimate security concerns that the West would not, um, you know, tolerate. Like the West wouldn't tolerate it at all if, if uh, you know, Russia initiated a coup in Mexico and then um, outlawed the English language and started shelling, you know, um, you know, um, uh, areas on the border with the with the U.S. You know, like like the U.S. wouldn't just sit by and tolerate and say, oh, hey, well, Mexico's sovereign. I guess we just got to accept it. You know, that's not real life. Um, so, you know, I, I would start at the coup in 2014 when the U.S. overthrew the um, the legitimate government in Ukraine. And they did so against the will of the majority of Ukrainians. There was polling. There was national Ukrainian polling that said a majority of people do not support the Maidan. So it was a small majority, but it was a majority nonetheless. And um, once the coup took place and the U.S. propped up a ultranationalist, anti-Russian, illegitimate government, you know, Crimea said they don't want anything to do with that government. And so did Eastern Ukraine. So both of those countries kind of separated themselves from Ukraine. So Crimea voted to join Russia and the Donbass uh, told, told Kiev that we're autonomous. So, so what happened? Uh, Greg, do you know what happened after that? Cause I, could, I I'd be happy to explain it. I know what happened before that. Everything you said is just like science fiction. Okay, Crimea okay, was well, invaded. Crimea yeah. was invaded. It was invaded, <laughs> occupied, and then yeah. they had their fake referendums. Okay, it was an act. It was a total occupation invasion. How, how many people died in that invasion and occupation of oh, Crimea? Yeah. So, so no, if the number of people died is the difference between the tanks literally rolling in. Which there is was what no happened. resistance because it was overwhelmingly popular. That's my point. There was no resistance. It was overwhelmingly no, popular. Cry- I can't hear you. Crimea is a Russian. Uh, it's it's ethnically Russian majority, so it's, it was overwhelmingly popular. They wanted nothing to do with the government that outlawed the Russian language and was virulently anti-ethnic Russian. Why would they want anything to do with that that government? And they voted overwhelmingly to join Russia, and that's why there, nobody died. Nobody died when. You know, Crimea became part of Russia because it was there was overwhelming support for it. So can you can you okay? So Greg Greg didn't want to no, continue that discussion. Uh, Nate, uh, that was me. That was me. <laughs> I I I made um I made okay. <laughs> I made Derek the next caller, and I didn't know that meant that I booted 
So it, booting, there he is. He's back. Okay. But uh, you know what? Let's let's go let's go to Derek. We'll give Greg a time to formulate a rebuttal. Derek, how's it going? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bow out since that was obviously an accident, right? Uh, okay. We'll put you in. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Greg, you're back. Sorry <laughs> about that. Did Greg come back or did he leave? Yeah. That's a this this app has some glitches. Uh, yeah, no, and it's also a little bit my fault. But um, okay, <laughs> well, there's Greg again. Okay, uh, I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna make. There we go. Get you back there, Greg. Greg. Okay. Uh, for, uh, bear. Thanks for bearing with us, Greg. These technical difficulties are pretty. Pretty awesome for uh, hanging around and and no, I want to give you time to say whatever you want to say. I definitely don't want to monopolize the discussion. So, I mean, yeah, what's your perspective? My perspective is you sit, you look at the total carpet bombing of Ukraine and sit there you know, laughing that, oh, uh, Russia is imperialist Nazi-like power. And I don't know what mindset, what mindset could allow the such a such a mind point of view. No, I, I get that. You know, um, it's like you know we're we're polar we're polar opposites. We see things totally different. Um, and I I can sit here and I can articulate why you know I have the perspective that I do. And um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I've had face-to-face -face discussions with my neighbor, you know, and uh, he, 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 he comes from the exact same place you do. Um, and, and so I get it, and it's, and it's, and it's a struggle to bridge that, that gap. Um, I think, you know, I think um, if you listen dispassionately to, to my explanation, I mean, I think, you know, you have to admit that it makes sense. You know, you talk about the, so here's, here's the other thing. Um, you know, we had the Minsk Accords, right? So Russia wanted a peaceful agreement. They wanted a peaceful um, settlement to the issue. And that's what Minsk was. But we know now, because Petro Poroshenko, who was the president of Ukraine, when the Minsk Accords were signed, um, he's admitted, he's admitted that, um, you know, he, he had no intention of abiding by his by his obligations. He admitted that he only signed them to buy time to develop the military so they could forcefully take back over the Donbass and return sovereignty from uh, Lugansk and Donetsk and Crimea. So he was straight, he's, he's, he's acknowledged that. So, you know, you, you, you have ethnic Russians in these areas. They don't want to be governed by a coup regime that was the result of a, a Western-backed coup who the foot soldiers, you know, implementing the coup were ultra-nationalists, right sector, Sloboda. Um, these guys were, um, you know, uh, worshippers of Stepan Bandera. They're, they're really ideologically awful. And so I don't blame Eastern Ukraine. I don't blame Crimea for not wanting to have anything to do with them. And I support Russia in defending and protecting um, their right to secede. So just like the U.S. said Kosovo is an independent nation and came in to protect Kosovo, Russia is saying Lugansk and Donetsk are independent republics 
and they're defending those republics from uh, from the aggression of the Ukrainian coup government. So it, it's totally defensible. You talk about civilians and carpet bombing. Well, guess what? That's what war is. And then Russia tried to avoid war. It was Ukraine volunteering to sacrifice itself for the benefit of Western political, you know, hegemony, and for the the U.S. you know desire to destabilize, weaken, balkanize Russia. Um, you know, Ukraine signed up for that. The government, the coup government, they had to overthrow the, the legitimate government because no democratic government would ever do that. Even Zelensky was was elected because Zelensky said, I want peace with Russia. I want good relations with Russia and I want to implement the Minsk Accords. Was he able to do that? No. So he got elected because he lied to everybody. But um, I mean, I don't know if you've heard that before, Greg. That's just me articulating why I support Russia. You might have heard it. It might not make any difference to you. It might not justify where I'm coming from. I, I don't know. Have you heard that before? I've heard it all before. You have a, a religious belief, a kind of an alternative belief system. Okay. And, uh, more you, and the longer you talk, you know, the more that's obvious. And you, okay. you actually get to the point of saying Ukraine has decided to sacrifice itself for Western hegemony. It's like it's like I'm talking to a Scientologist or something about um, you know the big creature. They're in trying the sky. to get Taiwan to do the same thing. They're trying to get Taiwan to do the same thing. They would love it if Taiwan went to war with China and gave China, you know, gave the U.S. an excuse to to really go you know decouple economically from China and really uh, take the gloves off against China. So they they would love Taiwan to volunteer to sacrifice themselves um, in the West's effort to destabilize and subvert China. It's the same thing. It's a proxy war. Uh, that's, that's reality. I don't think that's, I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's, you know, make-believe. That's not, that's not religion. It's a conspiracy theory of a, and a nutty one. A really, okay. it's just a nutty conspiracy theory. The West is trying to get Taiwan and Ukraine to sacrifice itself and uh, hey, how Pax, do you, you we, don't believe in get, democracy at all, I guess. Can, can we get Greg up on the speaker's zone and then we'll hear what Derek has to say? But I, I, I don't mind having Greg be in a, a third opinion up here. Oh, you're way too charitable to Greg. I mean, it's, it's not opinion. It's like, you know, science versus religion. I, I mean, that's that's your perspective. Um I mean, I mean, we can continue, but I, I feel bad because I know Derek might have things to say, and I don't want to. I don't want to stop the discussion with Greg either. Okay, we're gonna make uh, Derek uh, next caller. All right, you're on, buddy. I, I wonder if things are gonna get heated. <laughs> it was an interesting uh, combination of yeah. Opinions and polar opposites. I doubt we'll find common ground. But uh, what's on your mind, Derek? Yeah. Well, I, since uh, Greg is up there as a speaker, uh, I was just going to ask Greg if he's willing to answer. Um, if, uh, well, Greg, do you, do you think Russians are responsible for getting Trump elected president? Let's see. Is it's okay maybe, to answer, Greg. Maybe Greg stepped away for a sec. Well, he's, he's maybe. up there, but maybe he's not. Like, he can't hear me, so maybe his audio isn't coming through. Um, 
Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's weird. I, I, I'm interested too to see how much of the you know uh, liberal establishment Kool Aid uh, has been uh, imbibed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, personally, I don't just go ahead with whatever you know the TV tells me to think. I usually try to. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> uh, it's going on out there. <laughs> that's for sure. So yeah, anyway, um, hopefully Greg will come back. He's, he's um, just signed off uh, with Slava Ukraini, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let him go. Maybe Greg just enjoys hearing his own perspective, yeah. and then when that's over, it's time to tune out. So maybe maybe that's happening. he's gone now. So uh, <laughs> so uh, let me just ask yeah. you about was that was that a rough question? <laughs> I mean, did he run away because of that question? Holy fuck! Yeah. So Darren, yeah, who knows? Anyway. So it, it's an interesting. It is. It is a totally interesting topic regarding the indoctrination that you know most Americans just passively absorb. And, well, without you know, even so picking a side, I mean, I mean, gee, I wonder if if Greg from time to time has defended the arming, funding, and training of neo Nazis, murderous neo Nazis in Ukraine. I wonder if Greg is like one of those. Uh, neo-nazi supporters slash apologists you know whenever it's convenient he, you know like six months ago he was talking about punching nazis in the streets <laughs> in the united states and now he's like well i mean sometimes you just got to be allies with yeah. nazis <laughs> that murder people by the thousands for like almost a decade yeah, if, well all right let's uh, so greg did get back in the caller yeah so yeah. maybe maybe we'll get him to answer yeah, it's, it's unfair to well, go after yeah. him when he's when he's not here but uh but anyway uh, yeah. uh, Chaos, no. derek let me but do, i wanted you, to yeah go ahead okay go ahead uh, yeah sorry i didn't mean to interrupt if i did i think there's a delay going on too um i haven't read this article that you guys supplied um but thanks for thanks for uh, sharing it i'll probably get back to it probably a 70% chance I'll get back to it. I don't like to read too much, um, but it sounds interesting. Um, but I wanted to just quickly recommend on the off chance nobody's uh, heard of it. Um, it seems like it's relevant information to what you guys were talking about earlier concerning the UN and where we want to go. Um, not, not just, you know, related to the UN, but where we want to go in general concerning you know, international politics and stability okay. peace, all that stuff um back in the day uh B former secretary general of the united nations boutros boutros gale presented a list of recommendations to the un called an agenda for peace and it's a uh, really really well written very very simple easy to understand common sense approaches to you know, uh, solving all kinds of problems at the international level, um, interstate conflicts, interstate conflicts, uh, developing, you know, habits of uh, mutual respect and yeah. all kinds of beneficial ideas that, I mean, while well thought out and, and uh, you know, brilliant, um, all of them are just really basic common sense he just bothered to write it down I don't, maybe nobody else bothered before i don't know um but if you're unfamiliar with it i highly recommend reading that it's easy to read uh and it's 
it's inspirational in other ways yeah. too, um, outside of the geopolitical climate of planet Earth. There's ideas that you could glean from it that would be relevant to like, you know, community-based um, projects sure. or how to how to work with with people from you know different perspectives, different political ideologies um, in a way that's constructive. It's it's just a lot more thoughtful than what a lot of a lot of uh, you know a lot of the caustic kind of stuff that's going on right now. Um, it's also relevant. Uh, Boutros Boutros Kali is also relevant to U.S. politics in a way that's really interesting. I don't want to get into because it'll take like five minutes, but uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Well, that was at a different time. That, Thank you, Derek. We'll check that out. That, um, sure. you know, Boutros Boutros Ghali, he was, he was head of the UN back when the U.S. was not such a uh, global bully. You know, our, we hadn't established this uh, unipolar power. We were checked by other forces. We actually, like Martin was saying earlier, we had to actually engage in real statesmanship and real diplomacy. And he and Boutros Boutros Ghali was there at a time when, you know, the UN, we actually, the US actually had to pay attention to the UN. And that's, that's really changed. Um, we really don't, don't give a crap about what the UN thinks anymore. And we're just running roughshod over, over the entire world. And now that's changing though, with the rise of Russia and China. So it absolutely is a time to get back to that, you know, type of realistic, honorable diplomacy. But I don't, I don't see uh, good chances of that. So um, I don't hear anybody right now. You want to let uh, Mr. There's some right. <laughs> this guy, this guy, yeah. Um, yeah CG over here. I'm not sure how he pronounces his name. CG, how, how's it going? We're good. How are you? You've got to unmute, CG. I can't hear you. Oh. No, it says he's unmuted. Uh, okay, I guess we're back with Greg. Okay. Let's bring Greg back. All right, Greg. I can um I can ask Derek's question. Yeah. <laughs> who was Derek? Was who was Derek? Was Derek the one accusing me of running away and saying I was a Nazi? <laughs> <laughs> the discussion like we have differences we can we can try and have a you know have an enjoyable discussion about about our differences you know um if 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 we're just gonna be mean and hurl insults that's not gonna be helpful but i think derek you know so derek asked a question it was a little provocative um but but it's a you know what your take was on the whole russia russia gate hoax like i mean i i think it was a hoax but some people don't so he, he was just wondering, um, because of your, you know, your, your, your opinion regarding Russian imperialism and their aggression against Ukraine, he was wondering if you share the same opinion that Trump, uh, you know, won the 2016 election because of, uh, you know, Russia hacking the election and weaponizing social media to convince people and brainwash people to vote for Trump. Are you, are you? Is, is that is that a is that a is that a narrative that you buy into or do you reject that narrative? <laughs> uh, 
Some, we're just having a hard time today just getting people getting people up so he just he clicked out okay let's we're open okay derek wants to well <laughs> no no now derek's back it's and now greg's back it, it, yeah this is a tough it's a you probably got a tough job pax um figuring out this well, stuff okay now greg greg's back my options are delayed um, it's hard to handle this go ahead greg the floor the floor is yours I can't hear a damn thing. Sorry, Greg. It's uh, there's forces against you. I swear it's not us. I, I'd like to get CG back on. Uh, in the meantime, I'm gonna go back to Derek. Okay. Derek. Hey guys. Yeah. Yeah. Greg is probably in his bathroom shadow boxing in front of a mirror and, and saying that Derek's a Putin puppet. Come on now, let's not, uh, he, he's lost his voice, so let's yeah, I mean, I got him too much. Well, I should be nicer. Was he being well, nice to you guys? No, he's being fair. He's he's being fair. Um, I mean, he's got he a different being, opinion. He's being a dick. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's a little fucking asshole. Billy Bob, Billy Bob has a high tolerance for insults just because, I mean, look at his profile picture. So, Yeah, he was being insulting. I mean, maybe you guys are gracious. I respect that. But I like to put sellouts like Greg in their fucking place, personally. Yeah. You know, teach their own. Okay, pop, pop Derek, pop Derek up on the on the uh, speakers group if you can, and then maybe maybe we'll be able to get Greg. Um, maybe we'll get his mic working. Perhaps. I mean, it looks like he's in good faith trying to, uh, you know, uh, give us share more of his opinion with us. If you say so. Okay, Greg. <laughs> Can you hear yes, me? Yes, sir. We got you. Okay, that's better, Greg. So who's the brave guy who says all of these things when he thinks I'm gone? Is that Derek calling me a Nazi and talking about me shadow boxing, getting all these personal attacks? Is that this Derek guy? Uh-oh. Greg's getting worked up. Hey, Greg, so do you support the, the funding, arming, and training of murderous neo-Nazis in Ukraine? Oh, you know, you should really update your Russian propaganda because they're so not even that a yes? They're Was not that even yes? talking. Russians aren't yes even no. talking about. It's a yes or no Russians question. Russians aren't even talking about Nazis anymore. They're not talking about nukes. They're not talking about NATO. Now they're just okay. saying, okay. "Oh, yeah, Ukraine can't win, so there should be a peace settlement, and we get to keep all these occupied areas." That's nice. Do you think we ever should have funded, armed, and trained murderous neo-Nazis in Ukraine? I think that Russia are neo-nazis the way they behave is exactly right. like Nazis. everybody's a neo-nazi Neo-Nazi. that way that way you're not accountable for being somebody that supports you're accountable and, you're and apologizes on their behalf who's supporting the russian neo-nazis you are pretty gross dude no i don't support on either side yeah, dumb you shit. are you capable of understanding that yeah you do you support the no, russian I don't. I don't support funding support arming them. or training any any neo-nazis you do that's the, becoming very clear nope you you support russia they say that ukraine doesn't exist as a nation they say that ukraine is an artificial construct that's when did, pure I, say, Nazi when did I say i support russia i asked you a simple and straightforward question simple and straightforward questions you don't support russia now is that it 
You just bring up Russia because you know that you do support the fighting, arming, and training of murderous neo-Nazis in Ukraine. You brought up not uh, Russia first, again, didn't you? Didn't you? Let me um, let me let me offer some some historical out. perspective. Sell out! You fucking so, so brainwashed. It's ridiculous. Right, so, I'm the one. So okay, sit down, Democrat. Uh, so hey, Russia, Russia's the hero. Ukraine's neo Nazis. Taiwan is the villain. China's going to save Taiwan. You guys are it, okay. Let's talk about um, historical. Um, facts regarding how Western imperialism has historically um, promoted, supported, armed, funded, and trained the worst elements, the most intolerant elements all around the world in order to further their geopolitical interests. So uh, Pax is well aware of the West's training and perpetuating of radical intolerant Islamic fundamentalism. So radical, intolerant Islamic fundamentalism has something that the, the West has perpetuated because they know in, in the West's struggle against socialism that socialism would be incompatible with intolerant fundamental Islam. Same. So that's in the Middle East. In Central and South America, we worked with nar narco death squads. Uh, you know, drug, drug, drug dealers... And we would we would train death squads at Fort Benning School of the Americas, and we would unleash them against governments and societies that voted in socialism. In, in Eastern Europe, we use neo Nazis. We use actual worshippers and the and the and the heirs of people who aligned with not with Hitler against the Soviet Union. So so the U.S. has a very long and un, you know it's not hidden. It's it's a true undisputed history of working with neo-Nazis, Islamic terrorists, and in Central and South America, narcotic, you know, narco death squads to, to, to destabilize those societies that refuse to be puppets and that refuse to open up their markets and open up themselves to exploitation, both political and economic. And that's just a fact. And so what we're seeing today with the usage of neo-Nazis in Ukraine, first to overthrow the government and now to fight against Russia, it's 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 just basic U.S. history that's gone back since 1950, since 1945. There's nothing new here. I don't know if anybody has anything to add to that. If you want to go back that far in, in time, then why don't we talk about all the things the Soviet Union did in their horrible imperialism, their gulags, their taking over as much of the world as they could until the people had enough and the USSR dissolved because it's a, just a gigantic totalitarian state. And now they're trying to get it back. If you want to get into this, what about is in the past, then you got to be talking about the USSR and what a horrible, horrible thing that was for the world. Thank God it collapsed into so many pieces. And I'm thinking Russia is probably going to dissolve into a few more pieces. You know, I mean, I, I know that is the hope of the um, capitalist class that controls the the media and the and the political apparatus in the West. Like that's definitely the hope. They want to balkanize. Russia is not capitalist now. Well, Russia is is a, is a threat and an enemy of the Western capitalist empire. 
So yes, Russia engages in capitalism. China engages in capitalism, but they are enemies and threats to the Western Empire. I mean, that must that ought to be obvious to you. I mean, that that should be clear. I mean, the West couches it in terms of democracy versus autocracy. But in reality, it's oligarchy versus those powerful states that are strong enough to resist the oligarchs taking over. And that's why they're under attack from the Western oligarchy. But um, yeah, no, capitalism is, is, is something that is engaged in. in um, but the thing is, in Russia, it's not the capitalists that are in charge. It's... It's, it's the political party of Putin in a coalition with the communists, who is his biggest political opposition, and other, other parties. In China, it's the communist, China, uh, communist Party of China that's in charge. So the capitalists in the West are in charge, but that's not true in China and Russia. And that's why um, China and Russia are in, the, are in the crosshairs of the West. I mean, Greg's an amazing fucking hypocrite. I mean, talking about whataboutisms... All he can do in response to anything that's true or any reasonable question is just point at Russia or Putin. That's all he can do. It's like a yeah. it's like a reflex. It's like a condition. I, I'm not persuaded by his argumentation. It's not it's not compelling or persuasive at all. That's true. Well, first of all, the entire chat thing is about the Atlantic article, which is about Russia true. and the U.S. And and second of all, if you're asking, oh. Do you support neo-Nazis? The entire premise of that question is Ukraine and Russia. That's what you're talking about. So yeah, I mean, get it's it clear a simple, in your own straightforward question, Greg. If you asked me that question, I would just say no because I don't support neo-Nazis anywhere. It's pretty simple for me. I don't have to think uh, it through it, it, and come up with some agenda or some way to manipulate the conversation. It's, it's simple. Really I don't support them here. I don't support them there. I don't support them anywhere. Pretend, pretend like it's a Dr. Seuss book that ha captivated you at some point before you decided to like just become completely brainwashed. It's really simple to ask questions like, have you yes. stopped beating your wife? That's all that is. It's just a stupid, oracle gotcha. And you know that you support Russia in all its Nazi ways. And no, you won't I don't. Talk about that. I don't. You're not understanding that. If you ask me the question, then I would say no. But you don't ask questions. You just make stupid fucking assumptions. That's it. That's all you have to offer. Greg, sit uh, the fuck you down, Sello. You could probably defend. I mean, you could probably condemn um, U.S. imperialism. Well, I don't see him there. But um, I think we can, I, a lot of a lot of these people that give lip service to. Um, the mainstream narrative about Ukraine being under attack by, you know, Russian imperialism. Most of them are able to condemn U.S. imperialism. Like they might not want to and they might do it reluctantly. But you ask them, hey, do you support what the U.S. did in Indonesia in the in the 70s or in Central America in the late 70s, early 80s? You know, they're going to condemn that. Um, and I think that might be a good starting point for some, some agreement on things. Oh, I have them both muted. Sorry. <laughs> oh, you have, you have them both muted. So, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, you know, it's like, it's as if, you know, you know, people are beyond being persuaded, you know? And that's that's kind of that's kind of indicative of society in general 
where people have just aligned themselves into intractable positions that, you know, words, mere words, mere reasoning, logic, rationality are not capable of bridging these gaps. Uh, and it's, it's uh, capitalist class for, for doing this to people, for indoctrinating them with their, you know, relentless cradle to grave, uh, you know, propaganda. All right. We have uh, Pierre. I believe. Oh, he was there for a moment. <laughs> I think, uh, Dara, can you speak again? I Can you hear us? Oh, yeah, this, this app is a bit buggy. I tried to, I tried to uh, allow Pierre. Let's see, Greg is showing up as next caller again. I'm going to let him in. Hold on, I just wanted to say, Greg, you, you've changed my perspective on this. I thought it through, you know, I, I took in some humility that was long overdue. And I'd I just like to say, uh, but sometimes, sometimes you gotta support Nazis. But Putin bad. But Russia bad. Brilliant. Okay. We are trying. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, yeah, that's, uh, that's, um, yeah, I mean, what can you do? There's not a lot that, uh, that can be said. Like I said, you know, words sometimes aren't effective. Um, I, I invited Pierre. He Coincidentally, there's like 95% chance that Greg is unwilling to acknowledge that superdelegates, um, decided to go against the popular will in the presidential primary that put Trump in office, superdelegates that came from the Democratic so-called party. Um, he's probably also very much unwilling to acknowledge the voter suppression and election fraud that was committed by Democrats that got Trump elected. Coincidentally, there's probably all kinds of points that you could make about how Greg has been a sellout for a very long time. Okay. Uh, Greg, run back to your to your pantsuit wearing mama before you get fucking emotional. Right? So, you know, well, let's 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 have uh let's let's talk about democracy because that was definitely something that Greg gave lip service to. So he, you know, he asked me, you know, he 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 kind of uh, you know, called everything I was saying as a um attack on democracy. Okay. A conspiracy theory and he's like don't you oh so there's nothing to do with democracy and so and he was he, you know he was incredulous he was asking me incredulously you don't care about democracy so you know if if we if we if we assess that mindset you know the unstated implication in that in that incredulousness is that democracy is very important to him not only him he believes that democracy is very important to the United States, so important that we sacrifice ourselves to spread this great democracy. So, um, you know, that idea, you know, we need to we need to explore that some more because that idea is so preposterous, like there is no justifying anyone believing that the United States government Number one, cares about democracy or much less cares about sacrificing themselves 
to promote it. So what is obvious is that the United States hates democracy. I mean, they hate democracy at home and they hate democracy abroad if democracy happens to result in someone coming to power that they that is not convenient to their interests. I mean, yeah, I would say they love democracy when democracy, you know, works their way and they get somebody in power that's going to do everything they want. But if that's not the case, they hate democracy. So the very principle of democracy is is loathed by the West. Yeah, the examples are there, you know, Iran, Guatemala, Chile, uh, just all throughout the world, you know, Ukraine recently, um, you know, you can pick any continent and there's a good half dozen nations that we've, that we've overthrown because we didn't like their democracy. You mentioned earlier Indonesia, that was one of the most heinous. That was one of the most heinous. They had a very thriving communist socialist movement that was, you know, throughout all society, a vast majority, and uh, we kicked out their guy and we armed death squads as, as we tend to do. And we brought in a brutal right-wing dictatorship. And that was in the mid of the middle 60s. And when that government uh, took power, that government set, sat down, the leaders of that government sat down at a big round table with all the major corporations of the Western world. And they carved up every little sector of Indonesia's economy. And they handed out rights to natural resources, mining, oil, all this kind of stuff, agriculture, just handed it over to, to Western interests and basically just ensuring that Indonesia would remain a debt slave to the West in perpetuity forever. Yeah, they had no interest in bringing development or prosperity to Indonesia, which would have definitely happened I believe it was Sukarno, which was replaced by Suharto or vice versa. I forget uh, which one, but there was a, a duly elected left-leaning socialist and um, he was ousted. There was one to three million um, alleged leftists murdered. So the CIA wrote lists of names, handed them to the death squads and literally there was a mass execution of leftists, activists, academics, um, you know, union, you know, vaguely on the left, uh, you were, you know, you were executed. So one to three million people died, I think is the conservative estimate. And um, the CIA definitely facilitated that and, and the West definitely supported that. Um, and that's just one example. I mean, there have been an average of one regime change a year since 1945. The one in Indonesia is just one of, of, of dozens of scores of regime change operations just like that. So and that's what imperialism is. And that's what, you know, Russia doesn't do that. You know, China's not doing that. So when I hear people say China or Russia is imperialist, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's absurd. Imperialism is the West. Imperialism is military installations in 75% of the world's countries. It's, um, you know, after World War, after World War uh, II... The U.S. itself accounted for half the, half the planet's economy and only 5% of the population. So with that huge disparity, they built a military empire. They created an economic system that benefited them to the detriment of the developing world. And it put, and it put the U.S. in charge. So all that, like you were said at the top of the show, PAX, is what is under threat by a rising Russia and a rising China. And it's, of course, the reason why, um, you know, we're seeing these tensions and these conflicts 
uh, perpetuated increase. That's, uh, you know, their empire is, is being displaced and they are, they are losing their political and economic hegemony over the planet. And they're, tr they're trying to figure out a way to stop that and reverse that decline. And I, I don't think it's, I don't think they have any kind of an opportunity. I don't think they have a, there's not a winning strategy for this. Yeah. Uh, here's a, just an interesting quote I came across reading this morning. I'm reading about the original formation of the Sino-Russian um, agreement, you know, Stalin and Mao. And around this time, uh, there's a quote that comes from Stalin. He says, the First World War tore one country away from capitalist slavery. The Second World War created the socialist system. And the Third World War will finish imperialism forever. So that's, uh, that's Joe Steele's uh, prophecy right there. Um, but the West is, yes, they're, they're arming themselves and they're trying to uh, gather support to make sure that, uh, that their global oligarchy wins that battle. But I think uh, with I, the rise of China and Russia and their, and their alliance with the Arab nations and with Africa, I just think there's such a huge, in, in the global South, there's such a huge frustration and resentment against the white imperialist powers that it's over. I really do think it's over. And this is going to play out over a couple of decades, most likely. But there's also the potential, as mentioned in the article, for things to snowball and for, for there to be a sudden disastrous collapse of the West. There's people that actually think that could happen. And it could be connected with the fall of the U.S. dollar. But uh, I want to give you the final words, Billy Bob, and then I think we're going to sign off here. Okay. Yeah. Um, again, these these technical difficulties are are pretty unfortunate. Um, it's like every three seconds, it's like uh, it just is a little blank. Uh, I can't hear anything from Pax. But um, he, I, I heard that there was a Stalin quote. I didn't quite appreciate the entirety of the quote because of the technical issues. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, so, so Pax spoke about a, 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 a possibility of an accelerating of, of uh, the, the decline of Western hegemony. And that is definitely um, a possibility. Um, I don't see I don't see an avenue for them to reverse X. There's, um, you know, the developing world and even the the developed world. They're not that happy with how the West has um, utilized their hegemony since 1945. They have wasted their their huge disparity of wealth and power. They have they have done a, done a disservice with that. They could have done so much good. So much good could have been done throughout the globe and development and bringing prosperity. And that's not how they use their power. They misuse their power. They abuse their power. And people are very angry about it. I mean, governments are very angry about it. Um, you know, you can't have an open revolt yet. The, the West is still powerful, but everybody is seeing their decline. And, and it is an inevitability. And, and a large part of humanity is going to be very thankful. Um, the working class is going to be very thankful. It's going to be great for the working class. Uh, you know, the, the, the wealthy people that benefited from imperialism, they're not going to like it. They're going to resist it. But ultimately, um, you know, the majority is going to, is going to um, succeed. And, and there, there's, it's, it's impossible. There's, it's inescapable that the, the Western imperialism is not going to decline. There, there's no reversing this trend. So I definitely agree with that, Pex. 
All right. Well, I'm I'm ready to sign off. Thanks for the discussion, Billy Bob. And we're gonna I think we're gonna shut this room off. Thank you everybody for, for listening, for being a part. Uh, sorry about the technicals, but uh, we're gonna look this over and try and work things out and uh, come back next time and hopefully be a little smoother. But uh, thanks again, Billy Bob, appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon, man.